What's up everybody, you're listening to the Ravens Grove, I'm your host Dahi, and today it's time to revisit an old segment, Warfare Through History. More specifically, today we're going to be talking about the tools, techniques, and practices of one of military history's most iconic and legendary hybrid cavalry units, the Musketeers of pre-revolutionary France. Now, before we begin, this episode of the Ravens Grove features the following trigger warnings. Blood and gore mentions, death mentions, battle slash war mentions, sword mentions, and gun mentions. So if any of those are in any way an issue for you, please give this episode a miss. Right, so for those of you who have never heard of the Musketeers before, here's the uh, the quick notes version. The Musketeers were an elite unit of soldiers in the French military prior to the French Revolution. Now for the longer version. The Musketeers of the Guard, in French, Musketeers de la Garde, or King's Musketeers, Musketeers de Roi, had the former name of Musketeers of the Military Household of the King of France. In French, that is Musketeers de la Maison Militaire du Roi de France. Now, they were an elite fighting company in the military branch of the Maison du Roi, the French household of the French monarchy, the royal household. They were founded in 1622 when Louis XIII furnished a company of light cavalry, the Carabine, created by Louis' father, Henry IV, with muskets. The musketeers fought battles both on horse, uh, foot and on horseback. They formed the royal guard for the king while he was outside the royal residence. Within the royal residence, the king's guard with the more elite forces, the Garde du Corps and the Garde de Suisse. And the musketeers of the guard wore an early type of military uniform with a tabard, known as subreveste, indicating that they, quote, belonged, end quote, to the king, and an embroidered white cross denoting the fact that they were formed during the Huguenot Rebellion since with support of the Catholic cause. Now, before we go any further, I'm going to talk about uh, a little bit about the definition of the term hybrid cavalry. You see, traditionally, a cavalry unit in military terminology refers to a unit of specialized soldiers who fight for, on horseback. Now, this isn't seen much nowadays due to the invent of the internal combustion engine and due to the mechanization of warfare and weaponry, both of which happened during the First World War, by the way. But prior to World War One, cavalry units were some of the most specialized and deadly units on the battlefield. See, as anyone who's familiar with them will tell you, horses are capable of tremendous speed and power, and a soldier on horseback is capable of much more powerful and effective attacks than one on foot. In addition, there's the intimidation factor, by which I mean that an armed opponent on foot is nowhere near as intimidating as the same opponent on a beast that is charging towards you faster than you can run, and, when mounted on horseback, is a combined height roughly double yours. Now, this use of being matched on horseback as an intimidation tactic is actually still used by around in the, in the modern day, with horseback police officers being a common unit in many of the world's police forces. In fact, for many centuries, the only military units that could effectively neutralize cavalry units in combat were either pikemen, soldiers armed with long spears specifically designed to take out horses, artillery pieces such as cannons or mortar pieces, or other cavalry units. Now, most modern cavalry units, they do still exist as a military unit, but they belong to armored units such as like tanks or helicopter units. For instance, the U.S. 1st Mounted Cavalry was famous for being serving with distinction in most modern U.S. conflicts from World War II all the way through the modern day, but they mainly use helicopters or armored vehicles these days. So cavalry units do still exist, it's just that the unit they ride around on has changed. Now that we established what cavalry units are and how effective they were, let's talk about hybrid cavalry. Now this is a term that I personally use, I, it's not an official term, but it's one that I think works very well. You see, 
A regular cavalry unit would do their fighting nearly always from horseback. Now that's not saying that they were not effective on foot, mind. Most of these cavalry units were lethal on foot and on horseback, but for a dedicated cavalry unit, most of their combat training and tactics were based around being on horseback. However, the definition of a hybrid cavalry unit is a military unit that fights both on horseback or on foot with equal skill. Now, remember how I said that modern-day cavalry units still do exist, they're just in armored vehicles? Well, the equivalent, in my opinion, in the modern-day militaries would be special forces units like the Navy SEALs or the SAS, or pretty much any modern military special forces unit, in the sense that they're capable of fighting on all terrains, such as, well, to use the Navy SEALs as examples, sea, air, and land. That's literally where the SEALs in their name comes from. And they're not just restricted to one type of of combat on one domain, such as dedicated armed forces such as the Navy or the Air Force. Now, typically, hybrid cavalry units would be armed with both a melee weapon and at least one ranged weapon, and they were trained in both types of combat to an extreme degree of proficiency. Now, the reason I'm making such a big deal out of this is that because the Musketeers acted as a form of hybrid cavalry unit in the French military prior to their being disbanded by Louis XVI in 1776. Their primary weapons were the musket and the sword, but also sometimes cavalry pistols. As a type of sword, well, now this is something that nearly every single version of the story of the Three Musketeers gets badly wrong. Now, I'm going to talk more about the story of the Three Musketeers later, but let's just say that in the stories, the primary weapons for most of the Musketeers, with the exception of Porthos, is a rapier. Porthos uses a Shiavonna, which is a type of Italian broadsword, and that's because in the books and in most versions of the story, he's physically larger than the other uh, Musketeers. However, according to the, the website swordencyclopedia.com, which is a great website, I highly recommend looking that up, the main melee weapon of the Musketeer is not the rapier, it is a side sword. Now, a side sword was commonly used in the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance. It was known in Italian as the Espada del Lado, or in Spanish as the Espada Robera. And the side sword was the bridging sword design between the rapier and the arming sword of the Middle Ages. Typically, side swords had a straight, pointed, double-edged blade between 70 and 85 centimeters, roughly 27.5 to 33 inches in length. And this length made it ideal for both close combat, uh, close range, and uh, long-range melee fighting. The blade is typically made of steel and can be used for both thrusting and for slashing strikes. Now, this is directly contrasting to the rapier, which is designed primarily as a thrusting weapon that could cut only as a last resort. The hilt on a side sword was typically in, well, initially it was in a simple cruciform guard style, but it quickly evolved into a more ornate design while still being effective as a protector of the wielder's hands. In function, it was quite possibly the first sword to be used equally for fencing by civilians or for combat. Now, the conquistador Hernán Cortés actually used the Espada Robera in his conquest of the Aztec Empire in 1519, and they were, for the majority of the unit's existence, the primary melee weapon of the musketeer. Now, as one of the junior units in the Royal Guard, the Musketeers were not closely linked with the Royal Family. Traditional bodyguard units were in fact performed by the Garde du Corps or the Garde Suisse, literally translates as the Swiss Guard. Now, this may seem a little bit unusual, because, let's face it, Switzerland has maintained an era of neutrality for centuries, but in the Middle Ages, the Swiss Guard were, well, Swiss mercenaries, more specifically, were some of the most feared and effective mercenaries in the world. 
to the point that the Vatican, to this day, the Vatican's military, um, the Swiss Guard, is still maintained from uh, military personnel from Switzerland. They were that effective. So, understandably, the Guard du Corps and the uh, Guard Suisse were the really in-house bodyguard units. The Musketeers were almost like the secondary uh, bodyguard unit when the royal family was out and about. Now, because of its later establishment, the Musketeers were open to the lower classes of French nobility or to younger sons of noble families whose oldest sons served in the more prestigious Garde du Corps and Chevaux Légers, which were the light horse. The Musketeers, many of them still teenagers or young adults, soon gained a reputation for unruly behavior and fighting spirit. However, thus high esprit de corps gained royal favor for the Musketeers and they were frequently seen at court and in Paris. Shortly after their creation, Cardinal Richelieu created a bodyguard unit for himself. So as not to offend the king with a perceived sense of self-importance, he did not name them Garde du Corps like the king's personal guards, but rather musketeers after the king's junior guard cavalry. And this is the start of a bitter rivalry between the two corps and musketeers. As after the cardinal's death in 1642, the company passed to his successor, Cardinal Mazarin. At Mazarin's death in 1661, the Cardinal's Musketeers passed to Louis XIV to the disgust of both the King's Musketeers and the Cardinal's Musketeers. The Musketeers were subsequently reorganized as a guard cavalry regiment of two companies. The King's Musketeers became the first company, publicly known as the Grand Musketeers, Mousquetaire Gris, while the Cardinal's Musketeers became the second company, known as Black Musketeer, Mousquetaire Noir for riding grey and black horses, respectively. From their establishment, the Musketeers wore blue cloak-like cassocks lined with red and edged with silver embroidery. From 1688, the cassocks were replaced with smaller supervest or sleeveless coats in the same colours. In the early decades of the Corps, the Musketeers had actually worn civilian dress under their cassocks according to personal tastes and means, but in, 16, 16, in 1677, a scarlet uniform was adopted. Now, this is actually important because in the... In the story of the Three Musketeers, that's set in about, if my memory serves me correctly, like the 1650s. So, if you watch that, yeah, they're wearing the traditional blue outer garment, but they are in the period where they have a great deal of personal taste and choice in what they wear otherwise. They're essentially wearing civilian clothing over a military, under a military uniform. Now, in addition, this is actually not just restricted to musketeers in that uniform. Modern-day special forces units, such as the U.S. Delta Force, are commonly encouraged to wear civilian gear in conjunction with their military body armor and weaponry. Now, this is because Delta is granted a great degree of flexibility and mobility in the battlefield, and they're entrusted with the really really hardcore missions like they are the best of the best of the best in the u.s military as a result they one way you can discuss instantly tell a delta force operative on the battlefield is that they've got big beards and that they've got essentially civilian dress with military gear over the top modern other military units like say navy seals or something of that era they do not do that they wear military style fatigues now, I could be wrong on that, and if there's any mem- serving members of the military, please correct me on this. I'm just a civilian, but yeah, if you do actually serve and you, or have served and you're listening to this podcast, you have my utmost respect. Now, in terms of the recruitment, entry into the Musketeers was much sought after by the sons of the aristocracy who did not possess the quarterings of nobility required by the Garde du Corps and the Chevaux Leger. 
the two senior guard units were close to all but the highest ranking and most wealthy noble families. Now, according to the lesser gentry or ambitious commoners, service into the musketeers is the only way to join a mounted unit of the royal household and perhaps to catch the king's eye. However, enlistment did require both letters of recommendation and evidence that a recruit had the family means to support the cost of service. This included the provision of horses, swords, clothing, a servant, and equipment. Only the musket, the supervestia, and the cassock were actually provided by the monarch. Now, that's a big thing because most forms of military in the modern day will supply all the equipment and weaponry. Whereas in this case, the monarch was only supplying the ranged weapon and the true outer uh, garments. Whereas the recruit had to provide everything else, like they had to provide the horses, they had to provide the swords, they had to provide the clothing, they had to provide the equipment, and, this is important, they actually had to provide a servant to go with them. So, interesting. In 1776, the musketeers were disbanded by Louis XVI for budgetary reasons. Following the first Bourbon Restoration, the musketeers were re-established on the 6th of July, 1814, along with other military units of the former royal household. These expensive and aristocratic regiments proved ineffective when Napoleon returned from Elba, mostly dispersing, although some did accompany Louis XVIII into brief exile. Following the second restoration of the monarchy, the musketeers were finally disbanded on 13th of December, 1815. Decades later, starting in 1844, the group was first was the subject of the now famous serial publication, The Room for Three Musketeers, first published in the magazine Le Siècle uh, between March and July 1844. The author, Alexandre Dumas, uh, based his work on the book Memoir de Monsieur d'Artagnan, Capitaine Lieutenant de la Première Compagnie des Mousquetaires du Roi. In English, that translates to Memoirs of Monsieur de, uh, Mr. D'Artagnan, uh, Lieutenant Captain of the First Company of the King's Musketeers, which was written by Gatien de Cotis de Sandras, published in Cologne in 1700, a fictionalized account of the life of Charles de Bats uh, de Castelmo d'Artagnan, who was born in 1611, died roughly 1673, and was a famous musketeer. Other musketeers served as inspiration for some of the characters. For example, Isaac de Porto was the inspiration for Dumas' character Porthos. Jean Armand de Prayer, Comte de Troisville, was also fictionalized in the book as Monsieur de Treville, who is the captain of the musketeers. He's essentially the musketeers' boss. The Three Musketeers have since become legend, and if you haven't seen any TV shows or films or even read the book about them, well, I'd strongly look, recommend looking them up. It's... To be honest, it's some of the best fiction to be set in that time period, and you could definitely do worse. If I had to recommend one specific version to look up, I would probably start with the BBC TV show that came out in 2014, but realistically speaking, any one of them will do fine. I would, if, you, if you're if you only getting into it for the first time though, I would avoid the 2011 film. That one reserves to be later, and if you do see it first, bear in mind that it is not accurate to the book at all. It's a heavily fictionalized version. So, yeah, just worth uh, bearing in mind. Anyway, thanks for listening to the Ravens Grove, folks. I'm Indahi. You've been awesome. I'll take you in the next episode. See ya. <laughs>